you're listening to Of Sights and Men. A Daily Magician production. Welcome back to Of Slights and Men. You're joined by Jacob, and today I have a fantastic guest, Dustin Marks. If you don't know who Dustin Marks is, Dustin Marks is, without question, one of the most successful blackjack cheaters in history. Uh, he possesses an uncanny ability to remain calm under pressure uh, and a talent to perform undetectable sleight of hand under fire. He was employed as a blackjack dealer by several well-known casinos in Las Vegas during the 1980s. While under the watchful eye of the casino surveillance systems and pit bosses, he beat the casinos and was never caught, which is quite the quite the impressive part at the end there. <laughs> uh, Dustin has also um, been the author of several well-known books, including Cheating at Blackjack and Cheating at Blackjack Squared, um, both of which were updated in 2016. Uh, and he's also a magician, uh, a performer. Uh, he's released some really cool mentalism effects that I was looking at <laughs> earlier today, and I'm sure he's done much more than that. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you, Dustin. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Yeah. Well, I don't want to, you know, it's like, I don't want to like be like, ask the generic question, but I am just kind of like, I've been thinking about this all day and I've been really excited to hear the story. <laughs> I've been, I've been like reading around like what you did and like watching some interviews and stuff, but I'm excited to hear the story from you. I feel like the most intriguing part, we'll get into the magic and stuff after that. Um, but obviously in the 1980s, you were a blackjack dealer <laughs> and you were beating the house. How did that happen? What, what What's the story there? <laughs> well, story, long story. Uh, I got introduced to magic when I was seven years old, a little kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, just when the guy, he was about 60 at the time, got those cards in his hands, it just became real magic to me. And I was hooked ever since. And I, you know, followed the traditional route when I was younger, you know, practice, went to the library, got books. Then when I was in, uh, especially in college, I did a few informal shows and stuff. But after I graduated, I really got interested in magic. And I started researching, especially card magic and where the best card mm -hmm. magicians were in the United States. And most of them lived here in Las Vegas, Nevada. So in 1983, I moved to Vegas, not knowing a single person. And uh, not having a job. So I found out <clears throat> that there was a magic meeting every Wednesday night called Gary Darwin's magic club meeting. It wasn't easy to find. Cause of course, back then there was no internet, right. but I finally found it and I walked in there and there's Jimmy Grippo and Michael Skinner and Paul Harris and Alan Ackerman and all these guys I heard of back in the Midwest wow. where I was from. And now I'm, you know, one-on-one -on -one with them live. And it was really, really life-changing. And they were very friendly to me. Um, and, you know, my knowledge of card magic just zoomed. I went through the sky because, you know, I'm hanging around with some of the best guys in the world. Yep. And then I started wondering <laughs> who was the absolute best with a deck of cards. I heard a lot of names like Alan and Michael. and But then one name I heard that, never heard before. And they told me he specialized in gambling slights. I'm just going to call him Mr. CC. Okay. So he never went to those magic club meetings and he's kind of underground, hard to find, but 
he put out back then VHS tapes and there's a picture of him on the back, or at least we thought it was a picture of him. We didn't know for sure. There was a bookstore in Vegas called Gambler's Bookstore. It had thousands of titles on gambling, magic, con games, etc. And I befriended somebody who worked there. And I said, if this guy ever comes in to the bookstore, let me know. So I figured he'd probably come in and that's the only like clue I had or source of maybe finding him. So about six weeks later, my phone rings and Paul is the guy who called me, employee of the bookstore and said, you know, I think he's in here. Well, the bookstore is about 20 minutes away. I got there in about eight minutes and I walk in and it's a spot on match. I'm sure it's Mr. CC. So I walked up to him and I asked, are you Mr. CC? I'll never forget what he said. He asked, depends, or he said, depends on who asking. So we kind of laughed and we talked for about just briefly, maybe three or four minutes. And he asked me kind of a strange question. He asked, do you have a car? I thought to myself, well, of course I have a car. And I said, yes. He goes, follow me home. So I followed him to his house. Wow. Eight hours later, I left. He had showed me so much gambling moves with dice, with cards, et cetera, that I, I forgot just about all, but it was a brilliant strategy. <laughs> well, long story short, we became friends and we became partners and started taking off the casinos. So I literally, I turned out by the best who ever lived. And that, yeah, that changes wow. everything. Yeah, that's insane. It's it's cool as well that you just got, I guess, just got on a plane and went. Like, what 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 was... What were you thinking when you were like, like, what did you say to your parents or like your friends when you're like, I'm, I'm just going to Vegas? What, what, what was, what was their reaction and what were, you, kind of, what were your plans before going to Vegas? Yeah, like before you went and just like no job, nothing. You like, how did you get to that point where you're like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take the leap? Was it just obsession with the art or like, how did you get up the confidence to be able to do that? I've always been pretty confident. I just uh, knew I didn't want to stay in the Midwest. Always right. wanted to live out west from a little kid. Mm -hmm. I had a fascination from Vegas. So I just moved. I didn't mean I had a little money saved up, not a lot. And I got a job, not in gambling or anything, the second day I was here in Vegas. But it was an obsession to be one of the best. And, uh, you know, if you want to be one of the best, you got to hang around the best. You, yeah. you, you just have to. And back then, you know, there were no download and of course no internet no dvds to speak of and very few vhs right. tapes so you had to be you know in person but once i got here i was kind of on my own mm -hmm. and of course i didn't i was very secretive i didn't tell anybody what i was doing right obviously not my parents no relatives no friends i think that's one of the keys why i didn't get caught i didn't go out you know bragging about it or talking about it till well after i retired <laughs> wow that's amazing so in terms of like when you hit the ground like and you, you get there right and you're like, okay you, you have this goal in mind uh, how did you how did you actually like find obviously like i said there's no internet nothing like did you just start asking questions how did you actually like end up in that circle that led you to mr cc in the end well going to gary darwin's magic club meeting that how already had been uh, going on for about 15 years. So that was really right. the catalyst that led to everything else. I, I was there every Wednesday night for, you know, like a year and a half, never missed a meeting. 
because I was learning so much. And it's just really a fascinating time in Vegas and in the magic. Yeah. And how did, like, I mean, how did you find out about the club? Was it just kind of common knowledge at the time? Or like, how did you ask the right questions to find out about the club in the first place? I probably asked some magicians. Again, you know, he didn't, Gary didn't advertise it really. It was kind of underground. Right. You had to be a magician to join. There's no fee though. It's just a really good place to come meet other magicians and learn. We had, everybody was there back then from close-up guys to Siegfried and Roy. Well, not, not so much Roy, wow. but Siegfried would be there some. Even Copperfield would come in when he's in town. So, That's I mean, so this cool. was like the best of the best. Yeah. Yeah, you cannot get much better. <laughs> no, you really you can't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's insane. Um, I guess like when you were there, because like I feel like there's one thing being there, right? But then it's another thing to like really take advantage of those connections as well. So when you were at the club, like what 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 did what did like what did like a meeting look like for you? And like what 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 did you go in and do? Like I mean, obviously you don't have to like reveal any like. <laughs> anything like specific in terms of like theory or whatever or, or methods or whatever that you were learning but i just mean like what was your attitude going in and how did you kind of solidify those those connections once you were part of that that community oh my attitude was i'm a, a student i want to learn everything possible from these guys so i um you know kept my mouth shut pretty much instead of trying to impress them which would have been a joke yeah. and um you know, learn from them. And they were real open to teaching. And, you know, uh, Jimmy Grippa would show magic to anyone. Michael Skinner was really friendly. Alan Ackerman, we're still friends today. Daryl, became good friends with him. So, I mean, it was like a who's who and everybody was very friendly and open. And I, um, again, I didn't, you know, try to tell these guys what to do. Right. So I listened and, you know, was very appreciative. And I think that was one of the keys to being accepted. Now, these guys, <clears throat> I want to make this up front and very clear. They were magicians. They were not card sheets at all. Right. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I feel like, <laughs> that, yeah, that would be pretty crazy if you suddenly just start implicating, like, Copperfield in this. Uh, <laughs> in oh, this no, whole, like, no. Okay. <laughs> Actually, I never met David Copperfield um, because it was, you know, it was a pretty big meeting, usually 40, 50 people, and they'd break into groups. The close-up guys would be in one group, the stage magicians, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a little interaction, but, you know, that's just the way humans are. We form our cliques or our groups, yeah. kind of stay together. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's pretty cool. I think that's a really good point that you 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 kind of pointed out. <laughs> good point that you pointed out. A good point that you brought yeah. up um, <laughs> about kind of just being willing to listen and not trying too much to kind of uh, show off. I guess like not show off, but I guess like you weren't there to impress. You were there as a humble student, and I think Absolutely. that is what's impressive. I, I think I think a lot of the times, like, especially like when I go to magic conventions, you can see people like like I don't know. They'll see like Quantum Marie, so like David Blaine, right, or whatever. And they'll be like, oh, I need to go show them this, right? Like, oh, I, this might be a chance to, like, impress, right? And like you were yeah. saying, it's like, like, it's not like, it's no judgment or, like, being rude. It's like, you, you're just not going to. <laughs> but sitting and listening um, and being a humble student and being, like, open and, and to them, I feel like is, like, a really key part of it. Like, just, yeah, like, keeping that humble student mindset, right? 
And I guess, is that something you would say you've kept like throughout your life? Is that kind of student mindset? Yes, I'd much rather be a student than a teacher. You know, nothing interesting yeah. begins with knowing. It always begins yeah. with a question. Yeah, so I love that. I like to, you know, learn. I mean, I'm still learning. That's one of my great joys in life is to learn. Yeah, I guess for you, like right now, what, what are, and I'll get back to the story because I know I've left people on a big cliffhanger, but I wanted to come in and dive into some part, certain parts of what you said, <laughs> but I will get back to where it went after meeting Mr. CC. Um, but I was, I'm interested to know, like in your current life right now, what, what interests you or what are you learning about? What are you still learning about? What, what are you reading about right now? Oh, lots of things. Uh, human nature. I study that, you know, psychology, because that yeah. we employed that when we were beating the casinos, you employed in magic, et cetera, et cetera. That's probably one of my greatest uh, loves is study of human nature, you know, studying mentalism. I know mentalism and gambling demos are pretty far apart, but <laughs> I really like it. So, you know, I could have one show mentalism, one show the gambling expose. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I'm constantly learning about and studying there's so many just unbelievably unbelievable good principles and then you tailor it to yourself you know you don't want to copy somebody direct you copy the method but then it's all in the presentation you can take a fifty thousand dollar trick if you don't present it right it's going to be a flop you can take a five dollar effect and present it correctly and it's astounding it's all you know presentation uh, screenwriting, scripting the presentation, you know, knowing where to be, you know, if you're on stage, the lighting, the music is very important. Uh, it's all a big, you know, production, even though it might not seem like it. That mm -hmm. always gives a person something to work on. One day you'd be working on the scripting, another day the lighting, another day the music, et cetera, et cetera. And for you, if people are interested in these topics, like, for instance, um, you're talking about like human nature. Where would you suggest people start that that journey themselves? Number one guy in the world, uh, five New York best time seller is uh, Robert Green with an E at the end. Mm. Got a lot of YouTube videos. This guy's the real thing. He understands human nature. Uh, if anybody, well, if anybody, most people are going to be magicians. <laughs> I'm sure they know yeah. Danny DRTs. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Every motion, every word, he knows what he's doing. And it appears like he has no clue what's going on. And I love that. I can't get away with that. Uh, it's just not my personality, but I really, really admired in him. Yeah, agreed. I feel like that's something like Pitt Hartling talks about, where it's like, um, talks about this like performance versus non-performance mode and how you can control the audience to think that you're not in performance mode when you are. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's something that Danny Dortiz just does so well. Like, he's just such a genius at like, oh, he dropped the cards. And you're like, oh, it's funny. But he's in performance mode. Exactly. <laughs> like you just oh, have no yeah. idea that he is. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, that Penn and Teller is just on. It was unbelievable. And I happened to go to Penn's book signing. We talked briefly about Danny. And Penn mm -hmm. thinks, Penn Gillette thinks Danny's the best card magician in the world right now. Oh yeah, he's I I that vein of like Spanish magicians like Juan Tamaris and Anadotes uh -huh. and uh, they're just they're mesmerizing to watch like it and, and like you said it's so hard it's like 
to you can't you just can't match their performance style right like <laughs> they can get away with it and they have that such like ex- extreme nature to them when they perform but i feel like it's funny like I, I, when i first watched my first like danny daughter's like performance and like learn the methods so you just you try and apply it you know you try and put that like voice on <laughs> where you're like and then you realize like no <laughs> or at least for me i realize like no this is not going to fit my performance style but the theory that's behind it like you said it's just insane i mean he's yeah he's incredible because i could talk about damage with his all day but i, I don't want to do that <laughs> at least until maybe i have him on <laughs> um but yeah anyway um thank you I guess um, sure. getting back to, to where you ended up, um, where we ended up in the story. So you, you meet Mr. CC, um, you have this amazing experience where you get to go back to his house and he teaches you all of this and then you, you move forward into this place where you're working together. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit more on what that sort of looked like? Oh, sure. So we meet, we kind of stay in contact and then things weren't going real well. That's out here time i believe she's still my girlfriend i didn't marry her and we were real close to moving back to the midwest so we'd never been to california we figure you know we're close right. being in las vegas so let's go to california and i wanted to go to the magic castle and it was just Makes pure sense. luck at least from my you know mindset that mr cc was gonna be at the castle and he said he found out i was going he goes well here we'll hook up and I'll get you in because he, even at 25 years old, he's already treated like royalty. So we go into the magic castle and people are wanting to see him and talk to him and stuff. And this is before he became really well known. He was still really underground, but a lot of the insiders knew who he was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just an amazing experience. First time magic castle, basically a legend. And I guess I went to the, uh, bathroom and my girlfriend was there and told him you know we're moving back to the midwest is there anything you can do so we get back from the magic castle back to vegas he calls me up says come on over he teaches me how to deal the game of blackjack in two days third day i had a job dealing blackjack in a downtown casino in las vegas nevada that is so freaking cool. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was a decent dealer. Of course, I could handle the cards pretty well. And, I mean, he really taught me what to look for and stuff. So that went real well. Uh, at the first casino, I was not cheating at all, but I was analyzing the game every second I was on it to see the vulnerabilities, see the bosses, see what they watch for. So it was a very good uh, experience. And I did like a ton of research to know what's going to work, what's not going to work. I was only at that break-in joint for about three months. That was long enough to really kind of analyze the game and know what would work. After that, I moved up to a casino on the Strip, and then I started actually cheating as a dealer. I was also cheating as a player, but not that much and just, you know, not real strong stuff. And I'm glad I stopped that because that probably would not have turned out good. Hmm. Can you elaborate then uh, upon what, because I, I know people are like, well, he started cheating. And instantly my question is like, so how? <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> before I became a cheating dealer, I was a player and basically pinching and pressing the bet, which means adding to the bet when I thought I'd win, like I had a 20 against the dealers, you know, seven or eight up. Hopefully he's got a made hand. And of course, 20 meets, beats a 17 or 18. 
are taking chips away. When you got a 16 against the dealer's 10 up, you think for sure you're going to lose. Those are not the best moves. I would I was doing them very well, but they're not that strong. And you know, you like anything, you could get caught. My whole philosophy was the fewer moves you do, the better. If you're not moving, it's impossible to get caught. You know, the best play would that could ever be was my partner would come in and he'd win every hand without me making a move. Now that never happened, obviously, but that would be the best play by far. Never move and win. Mm. Interesting. Okay, and so I guess for me, like I'm like a complete novice, like in terms of like gambling, card counting, like cheating, <laughs> like all this like casino scene. I I I love. Like I feel like it's <laughs> it's kind of funny because when I was a kid, I was like, man, I I want to be like a, a scam artist. Uh, <laughs> and then because I watched like I, I watched Oceans, and then oh, I watched like the, the Real Hustle. You know, yeah. and I was like, oh, that's just the freaking coolest thing in the world. Like, <laughs> and then I was like, well, I guess like, I guess maybe a similar journey for some people is like, second best thing is like being a magician, you know? Yeah, <laughs> but it's, and it's a little like, safer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, a little more legally uh, secure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to know, like, okay, so it sounds all cool and you're using these terms, but I, I if I can get granular, like, what would one day look like? Kind of like in in the thick of it you know like what what was what were you trying to accomplish what were you doing on your side what was the person that you were working with doing and how exactly did you actually cheat how did you win if, if that if that's a good question i don't know <laughs> sure no great question i was the dealer i would have agents as you guys would know with partners come in we mm -hmm. obviously pretended not to know each other we had everything down it was all an act you know we were in complete control there's right. two moves I did. You know, you see the movies, they're doing all these moves. Now, that's not how it really happens. You get a couple moves down, you get them down perfectly, and that's all you really do because that's the smart thing. So the two moves I did, first was called flashing. I would flash my agent his card before he made a bet. That's a big advantage. So let's say he sees anything through a two through nine. He does not have an advantage, so he bets small. He sees a 10 count card, 10, jack, queen, or king. He'll bet medium and whatever that is. And then if he sees an ace, he has a 52% starting advantage, which is huge. Yeah, you absolutely destroy the game. So he'd make his bet. So he's getting really good betting correlation based on the card that would be the first card he would get at the blackjack table. Then as I tuck my whole card, I would flash him his first hit card. So now he knew what was coming. He was sitting at first base, which is the first person to receive cards at the blackjack table. So he would never double down unless he got a 20 or 21. So he won virtually every double down, which is huge. He would never bust with one card. If I had a six up and he had, um, I'm sorry, if I had a 10 up, he had a 12 and he saw a 10 coming, he wouldn't hit because he was a dead loser. So he wouldn't bust near as much. So I gave uh, my agents a huge advantage just with the flash, seeing the first card before he placed the bet and seeing his first hit card. We figured that was about a 33% advantage, which is, you know, in card counting huge. terms. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like they would die and go to heaven if they had that kind of advantage. <laughs> and this was consistently. This wasn't just once in a while because I would flash 
every hand or every card unless, and I want to get too involved here, unless he already knew something. So that we would win. And the nice thing about that, though, is we wouldn't win every hand and we didn't want to. That would be a tell. So, you know, we would win or my agent would win, but it'd be kind of ups and downs. He'd lose some hands, win some hands. He'd always win overall, but it wasn't where he went in every hand because that would be suspicious. Right. The second move, which is even stronger, is I knew how to stack the deck. So I could absolutely positively give you a winning hand, you know, every time without any problem. I was extremely good at that. I'd practice, practice, practice. And, um, I didn't have to look at my hands. There was no hesitation. I mean, I had that down about as good as it could be down. Now with that kind of power, you have to be responsible. So I wasn't stacking my agent, a hand, a winning hand after every shuffle. That would be a tell. So I'd probably stack, depending on the play, maybe three or four stacks per uh, session. So back then, I believe I was probably on the game 45 minutes. And then I'd take my break. So in 45 minutes, he'd get three to four stacks, which were dead winners. A lot of times blackjacks, but not every time. Again, that would be a tell. He gets a 20 against my 18. He wins. Of course, Blackjack back then paid three to two. So if he bet 500, he gets 750. So that's how we never had a losing session because it's just pretty much impossible with that kind of edge. But we took it, you know, we kept it where we weren't beating the casino, you know, just destroying them at that with those moves because I felt it was a lot smarter and safer to have like five agents who I trusted and they would win, but not win that much. So they wouldn't get backed off or barred from the casino. Because if my agents got backed off or barred, then I'd have to get new agents and then new agents and new agents. And eventually I would pick somebody who's going to roll on. me, And I didn't right. let that happen. You know, you get 40, 50, 60 people. It's just invariable. Somebody is, you know, maybe they have a prior charge hanging, drugs, et cetera, and they're playing, let's make a deal with the DA. We never had any of that. And that's why, because we kept it smaller, fly under the radar, you know, but these guys were coming in. But sometimes I had three agents a night coming in. So for those three rounds, I was moving the whole time. And I enjoyed that. I was like in my zone. I, I just was completely comfortable, was not nervous, didn't look like a good dealer, didn't look like a bad dealer. I just looked like I was a guy coming in, doing my job, going home at night. Um, the best compliment I could ever get after I left a casino, you know, just quit or whatever, is nobody remembered who I was. They just didn't remember me. I didn't make many friends. I didn't talk much. I just one of those guys who went in, supposedly dealt the game on the square and went home. Because I didn't want to, you know, didn't want people remembering me. Wow. I briefly interrupt this podcast to uh, just share a little uh, self-promotion with you if I could. Um, if you're enjoying what you're listening to right now um, and you think that maybe you'd enjoy more of our content, uh, please head over to the 
dailymagician.com slash books. There you'll find 24 classic magic books for free and you'll be signed up for our daily emails where you can hear and get more content just like this. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed so far. And uh, like I said, that's the dailymagician.com slash books. Claim 24 classic magic books for free and you'll also uh, be getting daily contact from us with more incredible content just like this. It's interesting because, uh, well, all of it's fascinating. <laughs> but I, um, what you were saying about like this small group of people is something that I think about like quite a lot because it's, I don't know, I remember listening to this like interview with Snowden where he's like, and by the way, I'm not comparing you in any way to him, but I was listening to an interview with Snowden um, and he was saying how like all like real conspiracy is a group of like no more than like five people because like yeah. the larger the group gets, the more chance there is that it's just that something is going to come out. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what I'm hearing from you is that exact same principle, right? Where it's just like, it's just statistics. <laughs> like if you have 50 people yep. working for you and doing stuff with you, then there's, yeah, there's 50 times more chance <laughs> that one of them is going to, one of them's going to crack. Um, oh I think, yeah. yeah that's something. Now, here's an interesting story about that. Occasionally, we would, I'd be involved in big plays, you know, 15 people. Now, some of them I knew real well, but some of them I didn't know at all. So we all had code names. I didn't want to know their real name. They didn't want to know my real name. <laughs> and that worked out really well. We never had any trouble, but that was the way to do it. And to this day, some of these people, I only know them by their code name. I don't even know if they're still alive or around. But yeah, the core people of course i knew you know we were actually pretty good friends but when right. did these big plays yeah you'd have different people and you know some of them were really good and some of them i was thinking wow i, I wish we this guy was not in the group just right you know uh but luckily nothing bad happened so what would like a 50 person play look like no 15 15 okay i was like 15 yeah, <laughs> Okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those were the computer coolers back in the 80s, which was like Star Wars kind of stuff because there weren't even really computers around much in the 80s. Do you know what a cooler is? I do not. Please explain. Okay. Before the computer coolers, a cooler was I was dealing the game with a regular deck of cards. You would come in with a pre stacked deck of cards you know everything matched the backs and stuff yeah. uh basically we just exchanged cards and then i would deal and the players or agents would win every hand that's a cooler okay. now the essential thing with the cooler is the cards have to be shuffled of course they're false shuffled but the the you know the cards have to be exchanged that's what the casinos look for that is the computer cooler. Now, with a single deck, you can do the move pretty much invisibly. But with six decks, it's impossible. Nobody in the world can switch six decks without it being seen. Well, the computer cooler changed all that. There was no switch. What would happen, this is fairly complex, but you have a blackjack game. Everybody sitting down at that game is part of the team. It's going to take off the casino. The dealer's also in on it. The boss is ne not necessarily in on it. The eye in the sky not in on it. So you had, say, five people sitting down playing virtually no money. So there's no attention at the game. 
Then you'd have one guy standing up right behind the person at first base, which I was a player at first base, but the guy behind me actually had a hidden computer on him. Now, nowadays, you know, it'd be nothing. But back in the 80s, that was really a feat. Yeah, that's big. <laughs> yeah, always, we'd always do it in the winter so he could wear a coat because the motherboard was strapped to his back. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He had the input in his pocket, not the toes, because it was just you didn't want to make any mistakes. And then he had a wire, an earpiece in. He had long hair so they might see the wire because it would talk to him eventually. So what he was doing is recording every card. Now, this was a face-up six-deck game. So it was easier to record the cards in the face-down game. And the dealer's in on it, so we would pace it or time it. So our dealer would come to the end of the, you know, not really six decks. They cut off about a deck. End of the uh, five decks. And then he had to fall shuffle six decks, which sounds really tough. Mm. But what we would do is instead of having a guy like me do it, who, you know, gets the job and in three months, you know, gets beaten out of 150, 200,000, which would be suspicious. We get somebody, recruit a dealer who's at the same casino for five, 10 years, perfect record. They are oh, less wow. suspicious. Yeah. And what they would do is simply do the sky shuffle, which is created to beat the eye in the sky because the surveillance cameras are straight down, looking straight down on the blackjack tables, especially back in the 80s. And back then you had one camera for three games. So they were, you know, wide angle. And all yeah. you do with the sky shuffle you break the deck like you would. You just riffle down the first half and then the top half, and it goes on top. Easy. Won't won't fool anybody at table view, but will right. fool the eye in the sky. Well, of course, all of us, you know, we don't care. We're down with it. We would have the couple of what we call turns walking near the game. So if anybody would stop, and for any reason, start watching the shuffle, they would cut into them, talk to them, and distract them so they couldn't watch the shuffle, just in case. I don't think it ever happened, but we had that taken care of. Then right before my buddy or the dealer would start to shuffle, another person, part of the team, we call them the fake BP, BP stands for big player, would go to a game diagonally across in the pit and buy in for about 10,000 cash. What happens? All the attention goes to that game. The boss is the eye. So they're all watching that, which nothing's going to happen there. It's a diversion. Right. And our dealer is false shuffling that six decks. So basically, those cards don't get shuffled. Now, the brilliant thing we did is we would time it. Actually, I was in charge of this. We would time it so as he's shuffling, the new dealer who's not down with the play would come in, tap the guy on the shoulder, which is standard procedure protocol. Well, once you start shuffling, you finish the shuffle. So we knew the new dealer would never get to shuffle. However, after the cards were put back in the uh, shoe, the new dealer would actually deal off that shoe and lose virtually every hand. So they were more suspect than <laughs> our dealer. 
And the nice thing about this play is once the money hits the table, and here's what happens. Say the five of us that are sitting at the table, dealers start to shuffle. We kind of stand up. Oh, we do stand up. That kind of gives a little shade blocking the shuffle. And we're, you know, we all pretend like we're together. And right. we pretend like we want to go to eat. So as soon as the shuffle's done and the cut's made, we decide to go to eat. And the BP, big player, comes up to the game. And we don't want anybody but him at the game. So he kind of nods or, you know, gets attention of a boss, says, look, I want to fire up. I want to play $3,000 a hand. I want a private game. So the boss will make the game, close it down so only he can play. Mm. So now the cards are recorded. He, the BP is the only one at the game. We have a new dealer who's not down with it. And the guy who had the computer now is standing off in the casino where the BP can see him. And there's only two signals he, the guy with the computer has to give the BP. One is how many hands to play. BP can play one, two, or three hands. And how many total hit cards. So he might get a signal two and three. I mean, play two hands and have three hit cards. What the software in the computer was told to do is figure out a way to have the player win by varying the number of hands and the number of hit cards. And there were built-in rules. You can't hit a hard 17. You gotta hit at least till you have 12. So there were no kind of really weird plays. Right. And we would win 97% of the hands. We wanted to lose a hand oh or two. Gosh. So yeah, it was just, I mean, just stacks and stacks of money. Yes. <laughs> it's like the opposite of slots, man. Like the RTP yeah. just goes through the roof. <laughs> My yeah, wife. so we did about a half a dozen of those in Vegas at the time. Wow. And the casinos didn't know what hit them. <laughs> Again, this was like Star Wars stuff. Nobody even thought of computers and casinos. Yeah. Uh, computers and blackjack that way. I mean, there were the uh, the card counting computers, but this took it to a whole different level. Yeah, that's crazy. And I guess around that, I mean, around that time, like, no, yeah, computers just were not even close to developed as they are now, right? Because it was still around the time that people didn't even think like computers would ever beat someone at chess, right? And so I, it makes me think like around that time, it must have been pretty like incomprehensible to think that a computer could generate even could even generate that could even let you win ninety seven percent of the time at blackjack. I don't know if I'm right in that, but I feel like that would be pretty incomprehensible. In, in the yeah, time exactly. Time. Most people didn't have personal computers. This was like eighty six, eighty seven. You know, right. computers didn't become popular in the home till probably the mid-90s. Wow. So it was, yeah, this was cutting edge back then. Yeah. So it, uh, and so that's an example where you had 15 people. And some of those people, you know, I don't remember them. I hardly remember their code names. Uh, but, you know, when you're taking off 150, 200,000, and that's 1980s money, which is a lot of money. Yeah, it's worth the, worth the uh, risk. We um, never had any real heat doing those. I mean, the BPs, you know, had uh, stories like they were big jewelers or, you know, mm. sold yachts or, you know, multimillionaires, which they weren't. But that was the cover story we used. I was too young. I was never a BP. I was in my 20s. I looked like I was about 19. So you wanted somebody older, more established. 
Yeah. Because well, <laughs> the casinos are uh, always looking for the young kids. They, they are more suspect than the older people. Yeah, that makes sense. You, that is a certain card counter type, <laughs> and you don't want to exactly. Do that. <laughs> yeah, wow. And so I guess like over your time, right, well I have two questions. But first, I guess over in your time, like let's say like a normal session, right, where you're just working with one of your like five agents, right? It's just like a normal night. How much would you look to take in this kind of subtle way? Um, and and how often were you doing it? Oh, on an average, of course there were variances, but. You know, around a thousand. It would depend on the casino how much they would, you know, uh, allow before they really started uh, watching. Right. So say a thousand a night per agent. Now, some nights I didn't have any agents. Some nights I had three agents. And was that every night? Not every night, but most nights. Wow. (laughs) And we would, here's the thing they do back the casinos would do back then, which was really advantageous for us. The mm-hmm. bosses would come in from six to two. I would deal swing shift because it was busier and you want it busy. The dealers didn't get there till eight o'clock and they would deal till four. So if an agent came in at nine o'clock, the bosses on say the swing shift would see him, but he could come back at three o'clock in the morning and the swing shift, I mean, sorry, the graveyard bosses would see them, two different sets of bosses, and they never talked to each other. So you could get, we could get two plays huh. in on the same night with the same agent if we wanted to. Wow. So that was just another way we would make, make it more deceptive. That's interesting. And how did you how did you hide your lifestyle, right? Because like you're saying, you're like this 19 year old looking kid who's making I don't know. I guess I don't know if you split 50 50, but like even if it was that, sometimes making like sometimes making tens of thousands in one night, right? And I think like you said, you you kept like a very low profile. Um, but I'm sure, like you said, like you for a second you were thinking, oh, I need to move out of Vegas, right? You were talking about like we were going to move back to the Midwest, so because there's nothing for you there. How? How did your lifestyle change and how did you keep that under wraps? Actually, it didn't change that much. I just, mm-hmm. I knew it was not a smart thing to, you know, buy homes. Suddenly turn up with a Rolex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that stuff never really appealed to me that much anyway. Right. So no, I just, you know, kept it in cash and uh, just lived a normal lifestyle. So that was never a problem for me. And I don't think any of the main guys, they, um, yeah, they just weren't into that flash and all that stuff, which was smart and good. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I guess, so I'm thinking, I'm sorry if, if this is like kind of like, this is what I think about with this sort of thing, and you don't have to answer this, <laughs> but you talked a lot about um, like human nature and stuff. Um, and I guess, like, I know that for me, like, there's this like, it's weird because like with casinos, right? We watch these movies like Ocean's Eleven and whatever, right? And it's like, for me as well, it's like, you're, you're rooting for like the scammer, right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah. which would technically be the, which would be like the thief, right? But it's like human nature to root for what would be under like legal terms, like the bad guy, right? And so yeah. I guess for you, how, like, is there any, like, I, I'm guessing, like, I don't know how to say this, like, in a way that isn't like, 
I don't mean this in any like mean way or anything or any rude way. Sure. I'm just interested, like for you, how do you deal with that dichotomy in your mind where, you know, like legally speaking, you are, you were like a thief, right? But like oh, yeah. morally speaking, it's the casino, right? So there's this <laughs> the feeling of like, well, <clears throat> the house kind of deserves to lose. Like they make enough money already, right? And it's like, it's a shady business anyway. So like, how do you deal with that dichotomy in your head and, and kind of how do you, justify it i'm not even saying you have to justify it but do you know what i mean i'm kind of just getting at what what drove you to do it and why why did you do it i guess ah the throw a beaten goliath i was david they were goliath that was number one number two see how good i was that was the ultimate test you fail it's bad news and back then i'm not saying now but back then and i dealt in different Mm -hmm. casinos Overall, the uh, the dealers were treated really poorly. It was really right. uh, rough back then. So I didn't have any guilt by taking their money. None. <laughs> what I did, and this is going to sound pretty crazy, but intellectually, of course, I knew I was cheating, obviously. Right. But emotionally, I just told myself, this is the way I'm supposed to deal the game. And I think that's one of the main reasons I never got nervous. Go in there, deal the game, do the moves. Now, again, we would try to do as few moves as we could because you can't catch somebody if they're not doing the moves. So if my agent's at first base, he gets a 20. He tucks his cards real quick. So I don't flash him his first hit card because he doesn't need it. Right. So anytime we could cut down on the moves or make them better, as far as that flash, what we would do is we would literally train our eyes to see faster. Wow. So we could see the card that normal people couldn't see. And then we weren't giving even a half of the indice. Like, let's say it's a spy. We give about a quarter of it. So you're getting hardly enough to identify the card and done in like a quarter second. Now, back when I was young doing this, I had better in 2020 vision. And you just think everybody does. Well, now that I'm older, I understand the boss who's 20 feet away, who's 50 years old. He couldn't see that card if we told him it was coming. (laughs) But, you know, we were still very and we had all kind of subtleties. You know, I could go on and on and on. But unless you see it visually, it won't make a lot of sense. But we had the flash down where it was virtually invisible. Nobody was going to see it but the agent at first base. Wow. And I guess, like, when did you come to the, like, when did you realize, like, oh, I'm, I'm done? You know what I mean? Because, like, obviously now, like, <laughs> you, you've exited from it, um, and it's it's been a while um, since. So w- w- how did it all come to an end? And obviously, because you weren't caught, right? So, like, Correct. it's kind of like a, like a Robin Hood of, like, walking away, right? <laughs> it's like, so why what, why the change? Did Yeah, why, why did you step away from it in the end? A couple of reasons. Number one, I told myself when I got into this, I was never going to get caught. I'm going to do whatever right. it takes not to get caught. Now, I did this for about four years. It isn't like I did it twice or something like that. I did. I estimate at least 500 different plays, 500 different sessions, maybe more. Mm-hmm. But here's a couple things happened. Number one, I went to Mr. CC's wedding, and I we knew for a fact the FBI was outside recording the cars that went there. Oh my god. That was not good. Jeez. Uh so that was, you know, that kind of disturbed me. 
a few other things. A few <laughs> other things happen. And I thought, you know, I've had a good run. Uh, didn't get caught. Made a lot of money. And I'm just going to quit. And I quit cold turkey with cheating. I still kept card counting. But card counting's legal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I right. wasn't yeah, yeah. no big deal at all. So, and that was just pure luck. I started out, yeah, well, in the very beginning, I started out kind of as a half, half-ass card counter. Then I went in and nobody knew me. Then I went into cheating. Nobody knew me. Then as I kind of had these associations, I went back to card counting, which is no right. big, you know, legally, it's no big deal. So that wasn't planned, but it's very smart. So then when there's a little heat on me, they could watch all they wanted. This guy always doing his card counting. And by then I had stopped dealing. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, yeah, it worked out well. So it was partially to answer your question, partially that uh, we were all filmed at Mr. CeCe's wedding and that um, I started to think, you know, I had a good run and I don't want to push it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's kind of interesting, though, like to have like to have that self-awareness. Where would you say that comes from? Because I feel like that's that's not easy. You know, like it, that doesn't just how did you kind of like work on that skill? Was it just like setting the precedent from the start? Was that kind of like a big part is like you said to yourself, I will like not get caught and I will exit if at any point I need to. Like, how did you keep that presence of mind? Because I feel like for a lot of people, they'd be like, well, you're just printing money, right? It's like you're printing yeah. money and you're, and you're stealing from bad guys. So it's like the perfect combo. <laughs> so how did you how did you have the presence of mind to stop? <laughs> uh, correct. Uh, probably by reading a lot, you know, a lot of psychology and stuff. And I say I've done a lot of dangerous things in my life in a very safe way. I never felt as in danger, no matter what I've done. I, I was, of course, but I never felt it. Right. Um, so that's pretty much how I think I kept myself from getting caught and to, you know, be calm. I stayed away from people that were just way over the top, you know, drawing right. attention to themselves. And this is long before I moved to Vegas. I never cared for those people. I thought most of them were fake. And especially if you're doing something illegal, those are the last people you want to be involved with. Yeah. And we... You know, I won't say none of us, but the, the close group, none of us were like that. And the outer circle, there were a few, but not too many. And Mr. CC was very quiet, very humble. He was not the center of attention at all. So I guess I modeled myself after him, too. And again, we were the same age. We were in our 20s. He was an extremely smart person. Oh, well, I didn't know that. I kind of I, I built him up as this like mentor figure. Which he is, <laughs> but yeah. not at an age. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's cool that you were like around the same age. Now I did have another mentor who was older, much older, about twice my age, and he taught me right. a lot of stuff. We never, you know, cheated together, but he was an old time burglar, as he called himself, but not not you know just the casino. Yeah. And casino yeah, he taught me some <laughs> stuff too, and um, you know, it was definitely. I mean, he's kind of a legend too underground legend but we were we him and i were very tight also so would you say in it was fact like a mix- oh sorry go ahead. you're in the magic right yes <laughs> i got sitting right here what he gave me you'll, you'll find this pretty fascinating there's a <clears throat> old black and white photo he gave me probably in the 50s 
on the back he wrote Eddie McGuire, Walter Scott, and Artemis, who were Walter Scott, Phantom of the Card Table. Yeah, so these guys were legends. He's got another one with Di Vernon and stuff that he gave me. So these are really cool photos that uh, I guess him and I are probably one of the few people in the world who have them. But he was, uh, again, he was older, and um, he helped me, you know, get my head on straight and stuff. Hmm. So I guess what I'm taking away from that is like a mixture of surrounding yourself with the right people and then also reading, (laughs) having like having that, being able to do that sort of introspective thinking that enabled Mm -hmm. you to to keep a clear head. Yeah, I was lucky. I love to read. Always love to read. It's one of my passions. Yeah. Same. <laughs> I try and read like four books a week. I, I freaking love reading. Oh, great. Good. <laughs> yeah. And I think like you said, it really does, gives you such, it gives you such like a clarity of mind if you read the mm-hmm. right stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, I mean, I I could honestly talk about this for freaking ever, but I, I, I want to get a little bit into your magic and, and kind of where you are now. Um, okay. But thank you so much for sharing all of that. It's, it's, oh sure my pleasure i guess my my last guilty question <laughs> guilty pleasure question is now that you've come out and said that you did all of that how come nobody can do anything about it <laughs> statue of limitations this was almost 40 years ago interesting so number i'm, I'm one, obviously in english so but yeah number two you know how do you know i really did it i did but you know maybe i'm just some guy just bsing about, Lying about it yeah you know and, you know, most of the casinos, the owners are dead. You know, they were yeah. in the 50s when I was doing this. They'd be, if they're still alive, they're in the 90s. And they don't care. You know, I mean, they're in the 90s. They're thinking about living that something that happened 40 years ago. Right. So, uh, in fact, I get sometimes, not recently, but I do uh, author signings, et cetera, with different people. And some at least one time there were some gaming control agents who had written books and gaming control is like the policing here in Nevada for the casinos. So their job was to catch people like me. And these, this one guy, especially he was around when I was cheating, but at this, you know, uh, author's book signing, we just talked like old friends. He wasn't, you know, mad at me and I wasn't mad at him. We just understood that's what we did. And, you know, uh, no uh, repercussions or no bad vibes at all. Interesting. I, I find that quite an interesting thing, like, especially in, in what you do in like that card counter scene, that there does seem to be almost like a mutual respect, not from everyone, of course, right? Not from everyone, but right. there's oftentimes seem to be a mutual respect almost <laughs> between like, the commission and like the ones that are coming after you and those that, that do it. Um, I don't know. That's yeah, sure. absolutely. So, I've talked sure, but... at uh, Willie's uh, World Protection Gaming Conference a few times and I've talked to, you know, surveillance directors and stuff and nah, we get along fine. No problem at all. Oh, that's awesome. But I never so, like, you know, say yeah. I rub, yeah, I never rub it in their face at all. That would be so right. <laughs> There's no no advantage of that at all. That was just being an asshole at that point, though, isn't it? I mean, that, that's yeah, nothing to no, do with, that's nothing to do with God counting. <laughs> I think they think right. I might come off like that, and I come off completely different. And I think that right. kind of 
disarms him and kind of goes, wow, this is not who I expected, which is exactly what I want. Mm. Present day or back, you know, 35 years ago when I was cheating the casinos, I just didn't seem like the type of person to do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was that was my just kind of guilty question because I was like, actually, like, sure. How does this work? Because I'm like, you know, like it's interesting, it's fascinating. I'm like, how can you just speak about it? But now that you've explained it, it makes sense. And I guess I need to brush up on my American law <laughs> to know what the statute of limitations means. Um, I right, guess that means yeah, if it's like too old, you can't investigate it, and without right. like proper evidence. Yeah. yeah, and there was no real evidence. It was all sleight of hand. Right. Exactly. And you were good at what all... you did. That's another part. Except... <laughs> Except for the computer cooler, but everything right. else was slide of hand. The tapes are probably long gone. There's just nothing, you know. I, I, I've never worried about that ever. Yeah, that makes sense. So, in terms of where you've gone from there, obviously, <laughs> it's it's hard because it's like it's your life, right? I don't want to just like skip over like thirty years of formative experiences. But in terms of where you've come from, this card counting place, um, to where you are now with your magic and stuff. Um, how is your kind of how have your goals transformed and what, what are you currently working on? Currently working on a show in Las Vegas about my life as a blackjack cheat. Nobody's doing that. Uh, yeah, I actually did it. Never got caught. I can mm -hmm. still do the moves and I can speak. So there's only a few people in the world, you know, that can do that. So I think this would be a natural, especially for Vegas, you know, because there's 30 million, 40 million tourists a year come here, you don't need a big percent of those people to still have a big audience. So I'd like to get a, a very intimate show, absolutely positively that everybody could see very well. If you can't see what's going on, you lose interest. And it would be more, it would be a different type of show. At least this is what I have in my mind than a lot of the shows. It would be partial, you know, showing what I did, not teaching, but showing but then also like a sit and chat, they could ask, like you're doing, ask me all these questions and right. answer it. So it'd be like sitting down with a card cheat, a night with a card cheat where you can actually interact with them. I could even have them come up to the blackjack table and yeah. show them how, you That's know, they saw cool. the card or how to cut the deck to get the winning hand, et cetera. You know, in my mind, that's a hundred percent winner. People will want to see that. It's like anything else. You want to stand out from the competition. And this is a, you know, it's exactly what I'm doing. It's not a, another magic show or another stage illusion show or another mentalism show. It's completely different uh, with virtually no competition in a sense. Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. It's like, it's you got to carve out your niche, right? And sell you. Exactly. Because no one else can be you. And so you have yep. no competition. <laughs> Yeah, and it's easy. I'm just talking about what I used to do. I don't have to, you know, obviously I'm right. going to script it out some, but I'm mainly just, you know, talking about the old days and showing the moves, which that would be, for me, really fun. And I think people would really, you know, it's a performance. I hope people enjoy themselves. That's the main thing. I want to entertain them. I want them to have a good evening with me. Yeah. Well, whenever that does happen, I will be there. <laughs> so <laughs> keep me in the loop because it sounds freaking yeah, awesome right. <laughs> the idea of coming up to the table and like interacting and seeing what the moves actually look like and seeing you stack the deck and all of that stuff sounds sounds amazing yeah 
I would, I, w- I would love that. So you've definitely got at least one audience member. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, well, awesome. Um, I guess to to finish out, I mean, actually, I, I guess, do you want to talk a little bit about like your mentalism or kind of like your well, that's uh, at, you know, I would obviously if you're a performer, you like to go and uh, be able to perform anywhere that needs somebody, but a different act. The gambling act, you have to have a blackjack table. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. It just wouldn't be good. So, you know, if you're going to corporate thing or somebody's house party, the gambling thing probably wouldn't go over real well. I mean, I might talk about it and show them some stuff. But yeah. So the mentalism, though, to me is really fun, making people believe that you can read their minds and stuff. I've always liked that. I studied a lot. It's just really, really fun. So when I do shows, it's mainly mentalism. I mean, a little magic, but a lot of mentalism. I don't yeah. talk much about the gambling or who I was because you want to be marketable. You want to have, you know, at least two different shows. Uh, yeah. the, the best would be have the show in Vegas and then do, you know, like corporate uh, gigs either mentalism or, you know, if they're going to pay me enough, I'll get a, uh, well, I have a blackjack table, breakdown table and bring it. Uh, just, you know, you want to be versatile in your uh, act so you can fit the needs of your audience. Yeah. And if people are interested in that, um, you can head over to dustinmarks.com, click on magic effects and have a look at um, your favorite memory. That was really cool. Um, and you can buy oh, it thank as well. You. Yeah, I mean, that's a well-known principle, but I, I like how there's a rationale for it. And then on one of the pages, there's an interview with me and discussing a lot what we discussed today, Jacob, but it's uh, yeah. a video that you can see. And I talk about meeting Mr. CC and some of the moves. It was well done. So that, you know, get a kind of feel of who I am. You can not only hear me, but see me on the video. Yeah. And in terms of, um, I, I have probably like two more, just like guilty pleasure questions. If you have time. Sure. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, the first one is you talked about selling a company. You don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but you talked about selling a company recently before we started the podcast. I'm interested to know what, what the company was, like how you went about selling it. Cause I'm, I love business. I study business all the time and that sort of thing. It just fascinates me. If you are willing to talk about that, you don't have to. Um, but if you are, I'd be very interested to hear about it and the process that that. that well, sure, I'll, I'll you know it. keep it brief. But a little company might have heard of Microsoft. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I see. Uh, no, no, nothing like that. Well, I had two passions in life: magic and uh, physical fitness, and they both manifested themselves in interesting way. Obviously, you know about the magic now. But I became really obsessed with climbing mountains. Uh, That was another reason I moved to Vegas, magic and mountains. So I wrote all the guidebooks for this area. And then I started a a business hiking club called the 52 Peak Club, which is based off a deck of cards. Each time you climb a peak, you get a card. Harder peaks are like the aces and kings, easier the twos and threes. Uh, And I did that for that business 11 years. I just sold it last week. Uh, I just wanted to get out of it. 
uh, some very good, you know, rewarding experiences and some not so good. Uh, so we have about 3,000 members, uh, very active, hikes posted almost daily. It's very well known in Las Vegas. But I felt it was time for me to move on. I'm getting older. Climbing mountains is not easy. It's tough on the knees, et cetera. I never got hurt. Yeah. You know, but again, that's the thing I was talking about earlier. Always done dangerous things in a safe way because we're literally climbing mountains. You do not want to fall. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, uh, so that's a good friend of mine. I'm sure he's going to do really well with it. Uh, but it's just my passion was it was done. I could tell I was done with it and I wanted to uh, leave it to somebody who could, you know, run it and have success with it. But I at this point in my life, I want to focus on the magic. That's my passion. That's my love. Uh, and that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. I didn't realize like Vegas had such good climbing and start until I started watching like Alex Honnold because I know he lives out there in, in Vegas. Yeah, he moved here for yeah. Red Rock. It's got some right. of the best climbing. Now we don't do what he does, but um, yeah, we do yeah. go I mean, to. Nobody all... does, to be fair. No, no, <laughs> absolutely. I wish people wouldn't emulate him because they're going to get hurt. Yeah, but um, yeah, there's lots of peaks. In fact, I named a lot of the peaks in Red Rock. Found routes to the peaks, et cetera, et cetera. That's cool. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, sure. My last question is. And this is kind of a hard one, isn't it? But because <laughs> I know it'll be hard to pick if you're a big reader. But if you were going to recommend three books in two categories, one just in general life, right, that have impacted you the most, and then three in magic and card counting and gambling that you think have influenced you the most, which six books would you name in each categories? Uh, well, let's go with just overall. Uh, start with the Why by yeah. Simon Sisnick. Oh, right That's how to determine your passion and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. Uh, if you want to be able to control yourself and people, there's principles and it works. And, you know, same author again, Robert Greene. Um, what's it called? I think The Psychology of Human Nature. Really, really good books. Um, you learn a lot. Start with the uh, the gambling you. books. Wow. Uh, obviously, my own. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, cheating at blackjack would yeah. be a good <laughs> one. Um, uh, you know, I don't do as many books in that field as I do in videos because they're just, you know, it's just better to see the move and read in a book. Right. Now, psychology is better in a book, but so I'll just name some people that I really, uh, you know, study, which be obviously we talked about Danny D'Artes, fantastic. Yeah. Luke Germay, unbelievably good. Uh, Luch is very good. Banachek came up with some principles in mentalism that everybody uses. Uh, all those those are all real good. Most of those um, have, you know, the video downloads now. They have a couple books out, but uh, the video downloads, because you can actually, the nice thing about video is you can see a performance. In yeah. a book, you can't. You got to imagine it. 
and it may be way different than you imagine. But in video, you get to almost all of them have at least one performance, and you know it's not staged, and it's uh, it's really good. The other thing I do, of course, this doesn't really pertain to your question, but I go to a lot of magic shows here in Vegas because there's a lot, and I learn yeah. every time I go. Whether I'm seeing Frederick De Silva or uh, Xavier Mortimer at the Strat or Banachek or et cetera, et cetera. You know, you got some yeah. fantastic performers. And you just kind of learn not so much their effects, but how they handle things and, you know, the staging, the lighting, the music, et cetera, et cetera. I've seen, you know, kind of awkward situations and how they handle it. And, you know, they're professionals. They handle it extremely well. So that makes it really interesting also. I know a lot of your listeners aren't going to be in a city where they can see, you know, top magicians all the time. But here in Vegas, you can. And you learn just so much, which is really helpful. So, you know, a combination of books, the downloads, the live performances. I think that all helps to become a better magician, mentalist, et cetera, whatever you're trying to, uh, you know, accomplish. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you for the wealth of knowledge that you've shared throughout the podcast. I've really just been, I've been enraptured. <laughs> I've just been sitting here, just like lost. I, I lost track of time. Um, oh, so thank you, thank you for the. No, story. my pleasure. Yeah, this is a lot of fun, Jacob. I, <laughs> I like talking about it. Obviously, you can tell in my voice. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it was fun. It was crazy times. In a sense, I look back and it's almost like, wow, was that me? You know, it's been a long time. I'm, I'm very different now and older, but. Right. No, it it was me, for sure. It just kind of seems almost like I'm talking about a movie I saw instead of my real life. It's kind of weird. Yeah. But well, it feels like that for me too. So yeah, <laughs> I get it, but not so much because <laughs> I yeah. didn't do it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah, well, thank you so much for being so open for for, sure. for answering all of my questions. I really do appreciate it. Um, and yeah, I'm a big. I'm, I'm a big fan of everything I've heard. Thank you so much. And uh, I, I just want to give you the chance if there's anything else you want to shout out before we, before we close out. No, I mean, your questions were really, really good. I um, thought you asked me some great questions. I hope, you know, I was able to answer them in a way that your listeners will get something out of this. Uh, again, uh, my website is DustinMarks.com. It's M-A-R-K-S. And you can contact me through there if you, you know, if your listeners have any questions. I, this is my passion, not, you know, just the cheating, but the magic and stuff. I mean, if any of your listeners are going to be in Vegas, love to meet you. You know, go out, uh, talk about magic, mind reading, whatever. Now, I don't teach as far as cheating moves. I, I will not do that. But I'll, I'll talk about them if somebody wants to talk about them. Uh, etc. Or, you know, mentalism, magic. I just, when I'm passionate about something, I'm like laser focused and that's pretty much all I think about. So for me, it's just fun. And the more people you meet, the more ideas you get. Uh, I think it's a very good thing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Like it, it's been a pleasure. You, you've definitely showed that. And for anyone that wants to reach out, I mean, I reached out to you and I got a response back within like I don't even know 10 minutes so <laughs> you definitely you preach what you what you share so i mean or i don't even know that's not even the expression but <laughs> i've had that experience if people want to reach out 
um it's definitely definitely worth it and also i got a shout out as well you know you are a magic mastery as well so thanks for being part of the membership oh Maybe sure we'll see you in some of those those uh sessions as well <laughs> yeah i'll have to actually i want to participate i just i have to look into that more yeah all right well and yeah i keep saying the same thing it's probably because uh, i keep hearing my wife walk around in the background <laughs> so i'm getting distracted a little bit oh, oh sorry about that <laughs> but yeah thanks so much and we'll end up the podcast here <laughs> okay again thanks it was really a lot of fun yeah